All right, welcome to Old Town New World. We're here in downtown Rock Hill, South Carolina at Millstone Pizza, and I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Gervais. And we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Old Town, Main Street, New Economy, USA. All right. So uh, today we've got a really interesting guest with us. Before I introduce the guest, I'd like to say hello to Silent Micah. Hello, Micah. Well said, well said. You're always full of wisdom. Uh, Chris, you're looking handsome today. Thank you. Yeah, great. And uh, you our look pretty good too. Hey, thanks, man. Okay, so with us today we have a man named Jeff Howlett. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. It's um, good to be here. Yeah, man. It's good to have you. I know you got uh, stuck in Charlotte traffic uh, getting out of out of town today, huh? Absolutely. Yeah, what do you, you, you work IT in Charlotte, is that right? That's correct, for a marketing company in Charlotte. Oh, yeah. wow, you know, we have a marketing company. That's pretty cool. I didn't know, I didn't know it was for a marketing company. Yes, sir. Um, so, uh, but you also are involved in what you told me, Tintype. Tintype is a type of photography. Yes. You Absolutely. also are uh, made movies, a documentarian. Um, we watched the other day uh, a band called Death, amazing documentary. It was available on Netflix forever. I don't know if it still is, but uh, we, we watched it. It was, it was on Amazon Prime. I think it was, it was amazing. We'll talk about that. Um, and you came here, at least from Vermont. At least you were there for a certain amount of time. So we got all kinds of stuff to cover. So sure. let me start with what brought you to Rock Hill, South Carolina? So it's kind of a family move. Uh, my, um, well, now ex-wife, actually. Uh, <clears throat> we, we moved the family down. So... Uh, about six years ago, and uh, we basically uh, moved here so she could be close to her family. Okay. Um, and uh, I actually wanted to go previously, um, I believe it was 2005, 2006, I almost got offered a job here um, when I was leaving, uh, at the time, Burton Snowboards. Um, so, so you, you work, that's where you work for Burton? I worked for Burton what did for, you do for about Burton? eight years. I did IT stuff okay. for Burton wow. too. So I, I was in charge of all our um, web services oh, wow. for about eight years. So, Very cool. Yeah, man. from like uh, 2001 to 2006 or seven. Did you snowboard? Doing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I haven't in a while. There's really yeah. not not much powder down here, but uh, I love to snowboard. Absolutely. That's great, man. I, my wife and I. She wasn't my wife at the time. Just uh, my girlfriend at the time, but. Um, we lived up in Vermont for about six, seven months, and uh, we went to Killington a ton. Oh, yeah. uh, and then we went up to Jay Peak a couple times, and it was just not for snowboarders, from my experience at least. Uh, but no. be- Vermont's <laughs> a beautiful place, man. So that's what you're doing in Vermont, working for Burton? I, I was. I, w- I was working for Burton, uh, and then after that, I got a job at a marketing company okay. doing IT for them. Okay. And so I was, in- I was actually an IT manager there for um, a few years. Uh, until we moved down here. So um, I was <clears throat> in charge of uh, three different offices, remote offices. One in Burlington, Vermont, which is where I live. Uh, one in Boston and uh, one in New York City. That's cool. Man. Burlington's a cool place. Man. It's so much like Asheville. Have you been to Asheville? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I actually, that was the first choice was to move to Asheville. Yeah. Uh, but her parents had already sort of migrated down here uh, two years prior. And she's really wanted to be close to them, so we picked up the family and, and made the move. Yeah, I'm always interested in how people kind of end up around this area. Y'all are in Charlotte or you're in Rock Hill? 
I am in Rock Hill. Oh, okay, yeah. um, she's in Tiga K. Okay, so wow. we're sort of split yeah. split between the two. Very cool. Okay, so um, t- you know, down here you're working for the marketing company in Charlotte, and then yes. you're also in this tin type. What in the world is tin? I mean, it's old timey photography. That's right. It's uh, so it's 1800s uh, photography. It started in 1851 by Frederick Scott Archer. Uh, he's a gentleman that wanted to basically make uh, a, more of a portable sort of photography because they had there was the daguerreotype at the time, which we, he was trained in, but he wanted to create a form that he could actually be mobile with. Right. Um, so he just did, he didn't want to use his iPhone. He's, yeah. well, he's, not, he's not an Apple guy. He's not yeah. an Apple guy. What? <laughs> so um, you know he created this form, and, and a lot of guys uh, embraced it and, and started doing. A lot of photographers here, France, you know, overseas, started doing it, and um, it just sort of evolved. So I gotta ask, man. So you put the hood on, the explosion goes off. <laughs> Right? I mean, where am I missing the boat on this? <laughs> so so basically, the sort of uh, quick and easy about it is I, I take a piece of metal or glass and I put an emulsion on it. Uh, that's called collodion. So they call it wet plate collodion. And then there's the tin types or ambro types. So I put this emulsion on. I put it in a silver nitrate bath. Uh, and now this is in a dark room. I take it out of the dark room. I put it in my camera. I take it to my camera in a, in a film holder, modified film holder. I take my exposure. Uh, after I take my exposure, I develop it and fix it like I would a black and white photograph. So if you ever uh, developed or, or played around in the dark room at all, maybe in high school or whatnot or college, um, you know it's sort of a similar process where you develop and you fix the uh, the, the, the piece of metal or glass that you're. Uh, photographing on and um, and then you you can actually show it to your your sitter which is your your person or, or, or you know so uh, so you, when you, once you show it to the person you know you can you, you then varnish it so it's kind of an extra step whereas black and white photography you'd sort of do the development you know and fixing and then show you know that would be your film you know your film would would be out, so it's a little bit, little bit different process, but um, sort of the same in effect. Well, you know, but, it fascinates um, me that in the in the time of um, where everybody thinks, you know, everything's about because there's nothing convenient about that, right? That's an artisan process, yes, and family. and there's nothing convenient about uh, brewing a craft beer per se mm-hmm. uh, versus you know buying a 12 pack of whatever you know at right. the gas station. Sure, but there's a culture. <clears throat> Um, that is a, it's like a, it's like a village. I always think about like Florence of the Italian Renaissance, yeah. like the village culture that is doing artisan style things and appreciating, supporting in that of, of each other versus everybody being commercialized, the American commercialism kind of stuff. I mean, That's do you right. feel that kind of anti-culture? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all, you know, I'm, in, I'm, I'm by myself, I'm in the dark room. I created these, you know, I mixed these, uh, the chemistry. It's like a, you know, being a chemist prior to actually going in the dark room and doing all these things. You gotta sort of mix these ingredients that you actually use to go on, you know, to make the emulsion. So it's kind of a, a very hands-on process. Absolutely. So I would say even for the person that's getting the picture, because on, on on the surface it's it's maybe like well it looks really cool, it looks really old. But the thing is, it's like well why does it look cool? And it's like well because it's old. And the thing is, is like I think it takes 
a culture where that's not the standard. That's the old thing that's supposed to be garbage. Like as we create technology, the idea, I guess, conventionally is that the new replaces the old, you know? Do I need to stop because of the train? Okay. Train, but Stupid trains. I wish I'd replace <laughs> it with something digital. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what? That's funny. I'm going to interject. I'm sorry. I, I know you're rolling on a train of thought here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, the fact that we all kind of are nostalgic about the train, and I hear in, in, in business meetings where people are trying to you know change the downtown, like, oh, we got to move that train. I'm like, no, man. It's awesome. Like That sound when it comes through, it's tapped into what we were just talking about. It's a hearkening back or a craving for something authentic it's not digital in some way but that's the thing that's the nature of that stuff it always i think it gives you you have to be saturated by the thing that isn't that to to have to view it properly like the idea that like i mean there was people getting on those trains when they first created them that were like you're getting lost in all this train technology when you need to be on a horse you know like it's but the thing is is it gives you I think there's like nothing in culture, not, not nothing, but most things don't truly die. Like for that reason, like like the look of those pictures, if you wanted to, you could try to make that look in Photoshop. Now, A. Oh, there's an app for that. There's an app for that, you know? People say, and they've come up, actually, it's, it's interesting you bring this up because someone has come up to us at a festival we were doing, we were doing this music festival. I believe it was in Massachusetts for the band Wilco. And, uh, this guy comes up he's all excited he's like I got this app you know he's like he's like holding it and he's all excited to tell us this you know that we're you know I mean we're making all this stuff in our hand you know we We've seen this app. We know he's what like, he's going to say. He solved your problems. He solved our problems. Yeah, he made our life a whole lot easier with this little app here. So I said, you know, it, so my buddy Chris, who I, Chris Morgan, actually, I, I photograph with him a lot. When we do big events, we photograph together. Uh, some, So we have someone in the dark room, someone taking photographs the whole time so we can switch off and, and, and sort of help each other in the process and get, get it done quicker. So he comes up and he says this, and Chris's first response was, but can you smell it? But it's literally, I mean, we use gum sandarac, which is like tree sap and lavender oil, so it has that lavender oil smell. So, so it has that really nice perfumey sort of smell to it. Um, and, you know, when you hold it in your hand, you, oh, it smells like lavender oil. I, I would say in the time of the highest amount of access and connectivity around the planet, mm-hmm. there is a higher than in the past hundred years craving for the uniquely authentic and tangible. And you see this hyper-localism around any artisan craft, like people want to sit at a table that was cut by hand and they want to, you know what I mean? They want to take a picture that took 40 minutes to take. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing convenient about vinyl, man, records. You know, there's oh, nothing yeah, convenient about a record, yeah. but a beautiful, it's a powerful experience. I think that it, it feels like the truth because we're, we're, we naturally feel like the things that are happening now don't. Like there's a reason like on, on Reddit, like if you post a picture of your grandparents sitting down it might get on the front page because it's the truth because you can't fake it like you can't generate it like it's the truth you know like cats and puppies and stuff on reddit why it's the truth you can't they're never faking it like a cat's being cute it's not doing it so that you click on it and we're inundated with things 
that are there so that we click on them. You don't know my cat, man. Freaking right. clickbait, <laughs> clickbait MF, dude. Yeah. That little <laughs> so transparent. Yeah. He is so transparent. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like glory ham. Glory ham. He's a ham. But like, like, I think it's not. Either, either, a, you couldn't truly recreate. I don't think was, we can't digitally recreate like the look of those pictures. Uh, you know, computer-generated images and movies, they, they look pretty cool, but they still don't... It's not real life, and you know it. And, yeah, A, you can't do it. Yeah, it doesn't have that smell, you know? Like, it's... That's what Spielberg says. Like, he, he doesn't want to let go of digital because he loves sitting and editing a movie and knowing this is what, you know, King Vidor smelled this and, you know... Uh, you know, every important director of all time smelled the smell of film or whatever. But like I said, some of that, you know, is just what matters and what doesn't. But I think what matters is that it's it's truth and you can't, no matter what, a person who has that picture that you took, the tintype picture, they know how it was taken. They know the process. And that that isn't just the way it looks. Right. You know, that's a truth about that, that picture that isn't there on the app. Well, it's unlike any other sort of form because it's more interactive. Uh, you know, even even with uh, black and white film, color film, whatnot, it's the guy's going in the dark room. It's not like he's going to take the guy they just took a portrait of into the dark room if he say developed it right then. Right. The beauty of it is, is it's it's almost like a Polaroid because you actually get that instant, yeah. almost instant. I mean, it's it is a few minutes of time to to develop the photograph, right. but you see it. And it's experiential, man. I think that's important. I think that's what is captivating about it. Like, it's an experience. Like, the whole experience of having my picture taken in this way is an experience. Versus, I mean, people are taking selfies and pictures left and right. It's not an experience. It's just a recording of kind of things passing by. Versus a moment that's being like, it's like a two-way experience between the person being captured and the person who's capturing they work together and kind of create this moment absolutely yeah absolutely so so let me use that as a as a segue point to documentary film oh absolutely i mean the statement that i just said inspired by what you do sounds like the process of documentary film where you have the person creating the thing that is the movie interacting with the person that is kind of recreating the thing that is the reality and you're creating something all together new it's like a dance between i mean is that fair statement or Sure. I mean, I guess it depends on what kind of documentary oh, right. yeah, you're doing, you right? Okay. If you're doing so it, talk about uh, that. yes. So, um, I mean, the documentary that I made was uh, called "A Band Called Death," which is awesome, by I, the way. It's very, very, very <laughs> massively popular and amazing that we haven't talked about it so far on the show. This I know it's <laughs> crazy. And Chris got on me the other day. He's like, "You got to get to the important things first. I'm like, "Dude, come on, oh. we'll get there." <laughs> but um, no, like, I appreciate it's truly, it. It's truly like my top five documentaries. Oh, like, oh. and it's an instant like. Oh my God! It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, like instantly. Wow. So Thank I gotta you. do this. I'm gonna interrupt my own. I asked you a question, and I'm refusing to let you answer it. So okay. I'm, I'm that guy. No I apologize. But no, I, but we're gonna go get back it. to it. I got to know. As soon as that documentary starts, man, you start seeing, uh, you know, Elijah Wood, and then you see uh, uh, Henry Rollins, and then you see Alice Cooper. And so you're in a room with a camera and Alice Cooper. Is that what was going on? So, um, oh, so that particular interview. Um, Mark Cavino, my uh, co-director, actually did that interview, okay. conducted that interview. You know, uh, it was very—it was a very uh, collaborative process. Um, you know, when people say, "Oh, I—I I made this documentary, I directed it," well, right. guess what? I bet they have some sort of crew. Now, granted, there's. You know, some documentaries, it's just a guy and his camera, and he does everything. Right. You know, but I mean, a lot of documentaries. 
have a crew. Yeah. Um, so so we had different people doing doing interviews and, and whatnot. He did that particular one. I mean, we kind of just just piecemealed like okay you're close to that yeah you get that you're so close to this folks? i mean were they out in hollywood were they out in california no he was actually on tour i actually contacted so here's sort of the producer hat sort okay, of yeah, changing yeah. hats around right so i did a lot of setting up all the interviews talking to management talking to uh you know all the folks that need to be involved and you know okay we we want to get this guy how do we get this guy? Yeah. Okay, we need to talk to this manager. We need to talk to that agent. Right. You know, I was sort of that bridge to those people because gotcha. of my music industry uh, knowledge and background. So for him, I just contacted their management and he said, yeah, sure, we're on the road. Alice would love to talk about the band awesome. and, and we're going to be in uh, upstate New York in two weeks. And I had, I think so for his Mr. interview, Big, I had actually... From Wayne's World. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. So, so, so I, I was just, you know, it just came together. That's awesome. uh, uh, but you know, Henry Rollins, for example, Scott Mosier, uh, one of our other producers in Los Angeles, actually interviewed him because he lives in Los Angeles. Oh, so wow. it kind of fit that he interviewed him. Wayne Kramer, who unfortunately wasn't in the movie, MC5, he was done by. Matt Pinnaserio, who's a, another one of our producers. What so about we Jello all Biafra? Jello Biafra was Mark. Oh, yeah. we, we were sort of, <laughs> so I had set that interview up. I was completely excited to do that interview. That was kind of one of the first interviews we did. And Jello was excited to talk about it because Jello actually knew the band oh, okay, wow. uh, 15 years prior. Oh, he wow. had he was one of the guys with that $800 oh, seven heads, wow. right? Yeah, right? So he knew about them. I mean, he probably paid a few bucks for it. So, but he knew about the band. Yeah. So to talk to him was was great. But we basically got to the point where. It was either me or Mark flying out there. Mark has a lot of camera experience, so I said, yeah. Mark, you, go, you know, God, be, you know, you go out there go. and get a great interview, you know, and and, uh, and he did, and it was awesome. It almost wasn't awesome. It was. It's one of those things. A lot of people don't understand all the behind-the-scenes stuff that happened to get some interviews. Right. That it was almost not going to happen because of, of Mark got delayed. It was like traffic and taxis and right, oh my yeah. it was like planes trains on them i mean it was completely <laughs> insane to get to jello's house and it's like oh i live here and i live this over here you know it's just kind of like this whole uh fiasco so anyway sense. i love hearing was, that that's the was, truth about him it was uh it was pretty interesting well in watching but that he was interview. a great he was a great um guy very gracious with our time with his time and and we were very fortunate to have him in our movie. Well, I decided in, in that interview in that movie that if anyone ever plays him in a movie, it's, it's got to be Jack Black. Because when I was watching him <laughs> respond to those questions, it was just like it was a routine from Jack Black. But, but anyway. He's like a cross between Jack Black and John Waters. Yeah. yeah he's, he's an interesting guy. Absolutely. Childhood, uh, you know, icon of mine. So, But it was an honor to get him, Henry. Um, you know, Questlove. I interviewed. We, me and uh, Mark, went up to New York Very and did that cool, one. Yeah. We did a we did a number of those you know interviews throughout the films together. Um, so who spent the time? Who hung out with the brothers uh, from the band called Death the whole time? Yeah, all I mean, we brothers. all, me and Mark. Oh, both. You know, okay. so uh, we we were we were hanging out with them and <clears throat> you know so what's just the putting the camera. 
for I'm uh, sorry, to interrupt, well, yeah. like for the listeners here who have no idea what we're talking about, like this document. What's the kind of elevator speech and what this documentary is about? Three African American <laughs> blood brothers from Detroit, Michigan, who formed a proto punk band in the early '70s. Uh, they almost got signed by Clive Davis, who was a big music mogul um, in the early 70s, and they turned the deal down because he wanted them to change their name. From so death. So they were from death. So they went into obscurity for about 35 years. So, um, you know, one thing that struck me in watching this documentary is that, um, you know, the any timeline I have, any any kind of comfort I have on understanding the timeline of music and the evolution of punk rock was kind of called into question by this movie because you got you know three black guys in Detroit man in Detroit while Motown is kicking in the early 70s before any of the bands that I saw as kind of the beginning of the sound had even put out anything or even gotten together playing music that sounds like like 90s DC punk almost or something you know it it, it it's a it's phenomenal and, and I guess I mean am I wrong that a lot of the response was exactly that like oh my god we have our canon wrong I mean is that what people responded to some of that yeah I mean you know there's kind of confusion too over like when did punk rock start I mean god only knows when it actually started who was the first band Uh, I mean you know there's a band in Peru in 1965 that you know sort of the beginning of punk rock if you want to go that far back so you know but they're in this category of proto-punk which is predates punk which is before punk yeah um so they're in that category with the bands like the stooges you know sort of a stopgap but i i I tell people it's like they're a stopgap between the stooges mc5 mc5 uh and like say you know the ramones and sex pistols and stuff like that like it's kind of like right in the middle there so the genre if you will and if you you know if you Wikipedia, death is in there under the proto punk band sort of section. So, but you know it's amazing though when you hear them talk about it in your documentary, which again was so affecting, man, and just wonderfully done. But um, they are referencing like they're in in the city of Motown, and they're talking about oh when we saw the Who, oh, it absolutely. changed us permanently. You know when we saw Alice Cooper, it changed. Per- and you're like really is that? I mean it's so cool to hear. Their perspective on it, you know what I mean? Oh, everything, absolutely. Everything about them seems too good to be true, and which is sort of the ingredients for the best kind of documentary. I mean, there's like the 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 narrative of it. It makes you like want this music to be great, and then when you hear the songs, you're like, holy shit, this music is great. <laughs> you know, like it you is. want it to be, yeah. and it, it is. is. Yeah. No. And, and then David, I'm sorry, the David, like the brother that seemed to be the kind of magnetic force, the energy the genius energy behind the whole kind of thing it's such a you know a tragic story and I hope I hope I don't have to be concerned with spoilers as I talk about this but it's such a tragic story at first the whole thing of like him not changing his name because um, it leads to their just kind of demise and obscurity and then him kind of you know going awry and just and him dying and then just the whole thing but but for him to in the story when he brings the master tapes to his brother and it's like the world will come looking for this and, and then for us to be kind of, you know, watching hipster culture salivate over coming, looking, and finding this, 
it's so it's so powerful, man. Really, yeah, I really don't have a question at the end of that. I don't know if you have a comment <laughs> to that statement. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very. When we started finding it, when I found out about it, I mean, I was just completely blown away. I was that guy at, at uh, you know, I was, I was, I was there at the Rough Francis, their first show, oh, wow. the Suns show, when they were covering their dad's wow. music. So I was at that show, and I, I was completely blown away because my reference point was. They were a reggae band. I thought that the, the Suns were actually covering the reggae band. That's the show I thought I was going to see. And so when I saw them covering Death, which was this music I, I had no reference about, I was completely blown away. So and the then that was in 2008. Mm-hmm. Predated the idea of having the documentary. You just happened to be filming that show. I so I did not film that show. Our friend Peter Wolf, who's okay. a good friend of ours, was he just happened to have I don't even know what he had. He just had like a <clears throat> like a I don't know very low grade video camera of some sort. Anyway, he he just like set it up and just started filming it. And he was there photographer. He actually took a lot of amazing photos that were actually used in the documentary. Uh, However, he was there. He was just filming it. I was like right beside him. I remember seeing him there and everything, you know. Um, and it was just—it was sort of just my. I was just kind of in awe the whole time. I was just like, oh my god. When I heard it, I knew we had to do something. I was a director of music videos at the time in Vermont, and I just—I wanted a. I wanted to do a music video, but then I knew that there was something more, right. a lot more, because I'm like, all right, they had this. You know, basically this family band, uh, you know, the family of musicians, I should say, they had a band, the, the fathers did, and then the sons had bands, and I knew all their bands growing up. I actually did a music video for Uriah, the drummer, okay, wow. uh, probably a year before this show, so like in 2007, so 2008 when I saw that show. Um, just to find out, like, oh my God, that there's all this other family stuff going on. I just knew, like, it spoke documentary film yeah. of some sort. So, have so. you made documentaries before that? No, never. Oh, <laughs> it wow. was like I did music videos, and that was it, because I was a musician. So, I was basically driven to do a documentary from just picking up a camera and putting a microphone in Bobby Jr.'s face and saying, yeah. "Tell me about your family, man." Yeah. Like, we literally sat down, it was in March, around the time the New, uh, New York Times article came out on the band. Um, this guy, Mike Rubin, did an amazing story on them. And um, anyway, I did, a, I did an interview right then, and I told my friend about it, Mark Avino. He was a documentary filmmaker, so he already had experience. He yeah. had been to film school years before I had, and uh, I knew he was the guy to call. Yeah. And then he blew me off for about a month or two, two or three weeks to a yeah. month or whatever it was. And uh, he thought I was out of my mind. But um, he read the story. He read the New York Times article. He heard the music. And when he heard um, the music, especially politicians in my eyes, he just was like, all right, I'm in. Yeah. 100% count me in. Wow. That's so, too cool. It's, yeah. it's such an exceptional thing because I, I mean, I'm – Documentaries. I love documentaries, but I, I probably have a pretty pedestrian view of them and stuff. Like, I'm not like an expert. It's not my thing, you know. So I love like my favorites are like King of Kong and American Movie and these just sort of like uh, 
it's just compelling because it's compelling people and then, then it's told really well you know um but it's i think the the subject matter of a band called death is like <clears throat> it's so fertile and it's so like because most of those like king of kong for instance has a clear villain you know it's like it's about it's video game nerds and it has a clear villain you know an american movie is really propelled by that and this is awful but it's if you're unfamiliar with it it's one of those movies that's like about somebody who is just He's, he's kind of a naive guy and you're sort of you're laughing at him while you're feeling the pain of his journey through trying to make a movie um, a lot of people criticize it for being malicious towards the subject but I mean I identify with it but the thing is is like a band called death is a true it's just a document of things that ha like there's no like, like I say King of Kong it's like it almost is like a scripted movie it's got a villain you know American movie is one of those documentaries that's really compelling because you're, you're kind of laughing with this guy or at this guy uh, a band called death is straight up here's what happened and yet it is so much like a movie and like most movies most documentaries i feel like to get that feel they have to manipulate reality a lot and i feel like a band called death doesn't it tells you what happened it's but it's so much like a movie it's insane yeah, yeah i mean they're they're i mean a lot of it just comes from the root of who they are right. as a family i mean you know they're just amazing they are who they are like that's no bs on yeah. camera like that's who they are um, and they're amazing people for for the community uh, that they live in in Jericho, Vermont, and under Jericho Underhill, and um, you know it's just and they've been we've been friends for a really long time, like over 20 years now. And um, Who, who's been friends? I've been friends with the family oh, for really? like that long. Yeah, because I my band played my so you know as a I think we talked about before I'm a musician. as a musician years ago, uh, different bands. So one of my bands played with Bobby Sr., his band Lamb's Bread, the reggae the, band. The reggae band. <clears throat> so you always just saw them as reggae. So, so wait a minute. Oh, so oh, I you always know what? saw oh them as reggae. I'm just putting this together. As well as their, their sons. I mean, when they found out, they were like, holy crap. Like, so you, you were know. discovering this as their sons were discovering this a little bit later. But later. Same, but, yeah. but same experience. Like, you oh, already yeah. knew them and had yes. them pigeonholed as one thing. And all of a sudden, you discover they're this puck man. Everybody did. Yeah. I mean, you're talking, okay, so... All like everybody, not everybody in Vermont, but most people, unless you're like a rabid record collector and you knew about the seven inch and you know, you knew about them, uh, but most people had no reference. They, they said, Oh, it's lamb's bread, it's lamb's yeah. bread. For, for a long time, actually, even after the movie came out, you'd say, Oh, Bobby, you know, the guy from Lamb's Bread, like people know the family as the guys in Lamb's Bread. So, wow. um, yeah, yeah, because I, I was learning that as I was learning that there's this. I mean, I, I learned first there's this deep mystery un, unveiled of this punk band, and then I learned now they're currently in a reggae band, right? And boy, okay, I'm trying, I'm trying to back put together the surprise and stuff. So, you actually experienced that surprise, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, very cool, man. So, I interrupted you earlier when I asked a more almost uh, kind of an artisan style, maybe philosophical question around documentary making. So, I'm, I'm interested as a as an artisan photographer and as a almost a not a documentarian who made an incredible documentary I mean what do you think about I mean is do you have a stance on kind of would you have an quote artist statement of what a documentary is or what you're trying to achieve I mean going with any documentary I mean I I mean right now I, <clears throat> I'm kind of on a break from it from doing documentaries but I actually have another one I'm, I'm working with a friend of mine, Tim, that 
our silent partner over here knows pretty well, and um, and we're 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 doing a, a documentary about a, a local guy here in Rock Hill, cool. um, about the world's hottest peppery. Uh, this guy Ed Curry, he actually has the world's record for the hottest pepper. Um, he has a company called Pucker Butt Pepper Company. And uh, I don't know if you guys have heard yeah, about them. Yeah, we're yeah. yeah. You know what? A funny story. I, I lived in Florida and, like, at Disney World and go to Epcot all the time. And they have this, like, uh, you ride through, like, a living garden kind of thing. And then for since the 80s, they've had this, like, the world's hottest pepper and the little thing in Epcot. And they had to switch it out for a guy from Rock Hill. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, every time you ride by, you're like, yeah, yeah. that's what's yeah, up. Yeah. I'd always be yeah. wasted and, like, all the like, people would be covering their kids' eyes. And you I would kind of... Right. You'd be Drunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I don't know. The process, and I mean, I know that's, you know, I, I just I just like to, you know, get into, like, if I'm into the subject, I'm into what I'm doing, and I'm into the story. Right. Like, I have to be passionate about it to be able to jump. I mean, we, we got offered uh, some different projects after a band called Death came out. Uh, immediately after it came out and some over the years and I'm kind of reluctant man because I, I mean I have to inv- I mean I'm investing my time in creating um, and, and being part of that process uh, of making the film um, but I have to be somewhat like attached to the subject I just feel I mean I know it's hard because you have to almost be a little detached like you can't get too close sometimes you have to step back some interviews you know I wasn't you know quite feeling it but I knew I had to do it anyway you know I mean we had these 12 hour interviews with each of the guys in the band and they're the interviews that thread throughout and those interviews are tough man I mean you're, you're talking sitting in the room for 12 hours our only break was like ordering a pizza and just asking questions and like just like emotions out the I mean there's so much stuff that isn't even in the movie that like was so heavy like and like you know yeah emotional yeah well I had a tear in my eye watching the movie man so you 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 must have captured the right stuff to put in the movie because I never I never during the emotional part I never detached and thought all right dude stop crying let's get on with the movie like I was Anytime somebody was getting emotional, I was getting emotional with them. You know what I mean? Which is an achievement of, I think, of storytelling in general. But I, you know, I think it's that's why I guess I go back to what you're saying. I go that you would turn down projects, so to speak, or you have to be passionately involved. Is why I go back to this notion that that a documentary is, to some extent, man, even if it's only one percent, it's to some extent about the person telling the story. I mean, because why pour yourself into telling someone else's story? It's got to have some element of you in that in that process. I mean, do you feel like you changed as a person throughout the the death process? Oh, yeah, when yeah, you died, dying. when yeah. you died, <laughs> I mean, the documentary. Oh my God! I mean, it's been life changing for really? sure. Absolutely. I mean, I've had so many things that have been difficult in my life, as I sort of uh, alluded to earlier. Um, you know about you know love and, and death of loved ones and I mean all this stuff and just going through these emotional sort of rebirth phases in my personal life I mean it's 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 yeah it, it, it's heavy you know I mean I, I and I when I watched the one you were talking about the emotional part and like feeling the emotion 
that's what we wanted people to feel. It's yeah. like, you know, someone, this guy, this kid in Los Angeles after our premiere at the LA Film Festival came up to me and he's like, he's like, after I watched your movie, I called my brother. I haven't talked to my brother in years, wow. like totally cut off from him. And I picked up the phone and just told him I loved him. Wow. And I was like, I, I hugged him. Yeah. I'm like, I get chill bones every time I talk about it. But um, I gave him a big hug and I said, hey, we're, we're with you, you know? I mean, I, it's that's, that's what you do it for. You don't do it for all the press and all that. I mean, we've had, we, we've been very gifted with being able to have some really awesome press and people digging our film and stuff like that. But a lot of that, you know, is, I mean, it's great. I mean, don't get me wrong, but like the real stuff is that kid. Yeah. You know, it's like the actual bonds you make with people. You meet people and they tell you like what they felt about the movie and how it affected them or their life. That's what you do it for. Yeah. And that's, that's why I don't, quite frankly, don't give a shit about doing some projects because I could care less about the money involved because right. I, I still don't have money from my movie. I still am owed money from my movie, even though it's been like, you know, quote unquote successful. Yeah. Um, you know, me and Mark both, I mean, we, we don't have any money back on our film yet. So, yeah. um, you know, if that says anything about profits for documentary, it's not very high, but so that's that my, that's my dollar we gave to Amazon go? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't get any of that? Not yet. <laughs> I think we should. Maybe, maybe when I'm dead, my kids, yeah, right. grandkids or something. <laughs> We should point know. out here, in case anyone doesn't know, it's like a 90 what percent on Rotten Tomatoes? Like 96 or 97 percent? 96 for a 96? while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like a couple of percent away from like Citizen Kane. So, like, <laughs> I mean, like if that tells you anything about, unfortunately, like that what you just said is true, yet you have like an almost flawless movie on Rotten Tomatoes, which I don't know if you're unfamiliar for Rotten Tomatoes. That is a massively huge deal. That's not, that's, that is, that's not necessarily a joke that I just said it's a few percent away from Citizen Kane. I mean, like, that's a massively huge deal. Like that's and and like you said, I think you're right. Obviously, the emotional component, you know, like that's what really matters. But that's that's what's cool. Like this movie is so many people have had access to this movie now. You know, it was on Netflix, and so many people have seen it. So it's so wonderful to know that that energy and feeling of your documentary is reaching so many people that you could never imagine. Like, you'll never know how many people are being affected by that documentary. This episode ran long, but we thought everything we talked about was pretty interesting, so we decided to divide it up into two episodes. So tune back in next week to hear the second part of our interview with photographer and filmmaker Jeff Howlett.